on today's episode of Based on a True Story, we're going to compare history with the 1988 movie, Eight Men Out. Eight Men Out was directed by John Sayles, who co-wrote the screenplay with author Elliot Asanoff. It was Elliot who wrote the book that the movie is based on. The movie stars John Cusack, Christopher Lloyd, John Mahoney, Charlie Sheen, and Michael Rooker, just to name a few. If you've never read the book or even seen the movie, here is a quick synopsis of the film. It's the year 1919, and the movie follows players on one of the best teams in Major League Baseball, the Chicago White Sox. Probably the best-known player from that team today is Shoeless Joe Jackson. If you're a fan of baseball history, you already know who he is. If you've never heard his name before, but you know who players like Lou Gehrig and Babe Ruth were, this story is why his name isn't always listed right alongside some of the greatest ball players in history. That's because this is the story of how Joe Jackson and seven other players were permanently banned from Major League Baseball. As historians refer to it, this is the story of the Black Sox scandal that we saw in the movie Eight Men Out. I'm Dan Lefebvre, and this is based on a true story. Before starting our story today, there's two things we need to do. If you're a longtime listener, you already know what they are. But if you're new to the show, welcome. The first thing we need to do is to set up our game. Two truths and a lie. Here's how it works. I'm about to give you three facts. Two of those facts are true, and one of them is an all-out lie. Your task throughout this episode is to find out which one is the lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one, eight White Sox players were banned from baseball immediately after the 1919 World Series. Number two, shoeless Joe Jackson set a baseball record with 12 hits in the 1919 World Series. Number three, the White Sox lost the 1919 World Series to the Cincinnati Reds five games to three. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode. And then by a simple process of elimination, you'll be able to know which one is the lie. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. The last thing to do before getting to our story today is to find out what we'll be covering next week over on the producer's feed. And that would be The Princess Bride. That's the classic film about the farm boy turned dread pirate Roberts and his one true love, a woman named Buttercup. It's a modern day fairy tale, except it was released in 1987, but we'll learn more about that next week over on the producer's feed. If you want to get access to that and all the past minisodes and bonus episodes, all you have to do is to sign up to support the show for whatever you want. It is a pay-what-you-want model to get access to hours and hours of past bonus content and all the future minisodes as well as the past minisodes, bonus episodes, all the exclusive content as it's released. It's just my way of saying thank you for helping me pay the bills around here and keep the podcast going for another week. You can get access to that by supporting the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com 
slash support. Once again, that's based on a true story podcast.com slash support. All right. Now let's begin our dive into the true story behind the movie, Eight Men Out. Today's story opens with some text on screen to give us a date and location. We're in Chicago in the year 1919. Some kids are playing baseball in an alleyway when we see one of the kids call out to another, I got two bits, we're going to see the Sox. This is how we enter the White Sox ballpark as we follow the kids buying their tickets and heading to the bleachers. Unfortunately, I couldn't find the exact price for tickets for the White Sox in 1919, although I did find that a common price for bleacher seats around the turn of the century was a quarter for a ticket. So if that's the case, the movie would be correct mentioning two bits for tickets. Not to get too far sidetracked, but that term was a holdover from the colonial period when one of the coins used most commonly around the world were the Spanish dollars. Each Spanish dollar was worth eight silver reals, so that's how they got the nickname Pieces of Eight. So in the U.S., one dollar was worth one silver real, and people started calling an eighth of a dollar one bit. Slowly over time, that shifted as the American currency did and eventually settled on two bits, meaning a quarter. Really slang term for a quarter. So that would mean that the kids were paying a quarter for Well, we see him buying two bleacher tickets, or maybe it's that he had two quarters. The movie is vague, but that probably would have been more historically accurate as far as pricing because we know in the 1920, the prices were raised from 25 cents for a bleacher ticket to 50 cents. Some newspapers lamented the good old days of the two-bit bleacher seat. Anyway, once we're in the ballpark in the movie, we get to meet a few new characters. The key one for our story, though, is Charles Comiskey. He's played by Clifton James. According to the movie, he's the owner of the White Sox. If his last name sounds familiar, you've probably heard of Comiskey Park. That was the stadium for the Chicago White Sox from the year it was built in 1910 until 1990, with the park being demolished the following year. Charles Comiskey was a former ball player himself playing over the course of 12 years as first a pitcher and then a first baseman for four different teams. That was between 1882 and 1894. He had a career 264 average with 1,530 hits and 416 stolen bases. During part of that time, he was a player manager for the St. Louis Browns, Chicago Pirates, and Cincinnati Reds. Between 1883 and 1894, he led his teams to 840 wins to 541 losses for a 608 winning percentage. After that, he bought his own baseball club in Sioux City, Iowa. Soon after that, he moved them to Minnesota where they were called the St. Paul Saints and were part of the Western League. A couple years later, Charles Comiskey worked out an agreement to share the city of Chicago with the team that was already there, known as the Chicago Orphans. And so, in 1900, the St. Paul Saints moved to the south side of Chicago and renamed to the White Stockings and joined the American League. As a fun little fact, the other team that was in Chicago at the time, today we know them as the Chicago Cubs, 
actually used to also be called the Chicago White Stockings from 1876 until 1889. Then for seven years, they were the Chicago Colts. Then they were the Chicago Orphans for about four years until in 1902, they renamed themselves to the Chicago Cubs. So that means when Charles Comiskey moved his team to the south side of Chicago, he renamed the team to a name that many Chicagoans were already familiar with. Oh, and the White Stockings soon changed their name to be the White Sox because the shorter name was much friendlier to newspaper headlines. Speaking of names to be familiar with, Charles Comiskey had a few nicknames that we hear in the movie too. One was the Old Roman. It was a nickname that he got because of his large nose. Although, as a little side note, he wasn't actually from Italy at all. Charles's father was Honest John Comiskey, a politician in Chicago who immigrated to the United States from Ireland in 1826. But most of Charles's friends and colleagues use the nickname that we see in the film more, Kami, because of his last name. Going back to the movie, after being introduced to Charles Comiskey, we see some of the stars of the Chicago White Sox team in 1919 on the field. This is going to be a list of names, so here we go. First, there's Eddie Seacott, who's played by David Strathairn. Then there's Chick Gandil. He's played by Michael Rooker. Ray Schock is played by Gordon Clapp. Swede Risberg is played by Don Harvey. Eddie Collins is played by Bill Irwin. Hap Felsch is played by Charlie Sheen. Buck Weaver is played by John Cusack. And the biggest star on the field for the Sox at the time, Shoeless Joe Jackson. He's played by D.B. Sweeney. All of those were real players. I know we mentioned Joe Jackson in the introduction to this episode, but let's get a quick rundown on these players because that will help us get a better perspective for just how great this White Sox team was in 1919. Since we've already mentioned him, let's start with Joe Jackson. He was the starting left fielder for the White Sox that year. The 31-year-old also had 181 hits in 599 at-bats for an amazing 351 batting average, just five points less than his career average. He also had 96 RBIs with nine stolen bases across 139 games. Interestingly, even though Jackson was the only White Sox starter to have single digits and stolen bases in 1919, that's not because he was slow. In fact, quite the opposite. Jackson had 14 triples in 1919, not quite the 26 triples he had in 1912 when Jackson hit 395 in 154 games for the Cleveland Indians, but still pretty good. Jackson also had some pop in his bat. Even though he only hit seven home runs in 1919, that was what we call the dead ball era or a period in baseball when not many home runs were hit. In fact, in all of Major League Baseball in 1919, there were only six players who had double digits in home runs, with Babe Ruth topping the list at 29 and second place having only 12. So that's shoeless Joe Jackson. And again, he's played by D.B. Sweeney in the movie. Oh, before we cover the others, though, let's chat about that nickname that came before his time in the majors when he got blisters from a pair of new cleats during a game. They hurt his feet so bad that he took them off and kept playing. When a fan called him out for it, the nickname Shoeless Joe Jackson stuck for the rest of his life. 
Okay, so let's round out the diamond for the White Sox that year. With Jackson in left field, center field was covered by Oscar Happy Felch. Although, he's usually just went by Hap or Happy. If you recall, he's played by Charlie Sheen in the movie. Hap tied Joe Jackson with a team lead in home runs with seven. At 27 years old in 1919, Hap hit 275 with 86 RBIs and 138 hits in 568 at-bats across 135 games. He rounded that out with 19 stolen bases. The movie doesn't really focus on the right fielder for the White Sox that year. In fact, he's not even in the movie at all. But that was a man named Nemo Leibold. He was good, too. He hit 302 that year with 131 hits, 26 RBIs, 17 stolen bases across 523 at-bats in 122 games. Heading into the infield, at first base was Arnold Chick Gandil. He's played by Michael Rooker. In 1919, the real Chick Gandil hit 290 with 10 stolen bases, a home run, and 128 hits in 441 at-bats across 115 games. Playing at second base was Bill Irwin's character, Eddie Collins. In 1919, Eddie Collins batted 319 by collecting 165 hits in 518 at-bats across 140 games. He also had 80 RBIs and racked up 33 stolen bases, leading the team. On third base for the White Sox in 1919 was Buck Weaver. He's played by John Cusack in the movie. The real Buck hit 296 with 169 hits in 571 at-bats across 140 games in 1919. He also had some speed with 22 stolen bases and came second on the team with 33 doubles. Hap Felsch led the team with 34. Between second and third at shortstop was Charles Swede Risberg. He's played by Don Harvey in the movie. In 1919, Risberg had the lowest batting average on the starting lineup at 256. He had 106 hits and 414 at-bats in 119 games. He was also the youngest starter at only 24. As a little side note, on the other side of that, Eddie Collins was the oldest at 32. The last starter for the White Sox in 1919 was Ray Schock. He's played by Gordon Clapp in the movie, but the real Ray hit 282 with 111 hits in 394 at-bats, playing in 131 games in 1919. Wait, did I say Ray Schalk was the last of the starting lineup? Well, maybe for the position players. In the movie, there's two starting pitchers that they focus on, Eddie Seacott and Claude Lefty Williams. Those were the two aces on the White Sox staff in 1919. (laughs) Talk about aces. They were great. That year, the 35-year-old Eddie Seacott pitched in 40 games, starting 35 and racking up an amazing 306 and two-thirds innings pitched. Amazingly, he had a 1.82 ERA with an incredible 29-7 and record. That's just unheard of. Lefty Williams was only 26 years old in 1919, but he was nearly as good as Seacott, if you can believe it. He pitched in 41 games, starting 40 of them. In 297 innings pitched, Williams had a 2.64 ERA and a record of 23-11. and 11. Oh, and you 
might have guessed from their crazy number of innings, but of the 35 games that Eddie Seacott started, he pitched 30 complete games. As for Lefty Williams, he had 27 complete games in 40 starts. That, in today's baseball, is unheard of. All combined, the White Sox had the best record in the American League in 1919 with 88 wins to 52 losses, three and a half games over the second place Cleveland Indians. Oh, and yes, if you've added those together, that's 140 games. Not the same as the 162 games played today in Major League Baseball. Although, the White Sox didn't actually have the best record overall that year. That honor belonged to the team that the White Sox played in the World Series, the Cincinnati Reds. They had a record of 96-44 and 44 for tops in baseball. But that's getting a little ahead of our story. The weather is getting nicer, which means now is the perfect time to plan ahead for summer fun. Personally, I'm hoping to be able to visit my family this summer, and that means booking flights as soon as possible before the prices go up. And now you can help ensure your money is there when you need it with today's sponsor, Earn In. Just download the Earn In app, verify your paycheck, and watch your earnings tick up as you work. Access up to $100 a day and up to $750 per pay period so you can start making your summer plans now. It's free and easy to get started. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up. It'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. Heading back to the movie, there's a number of sequences that set up a strained relationship between the White Sox players and the team's owner. It starts when we see Charlie Sheen's version of Hap Felsch grab a pop fly, sealing the team's pennant and sending them to the World Series. In the locker room, everyone is celebrating until they get their bonus from Charles Comiskey for winning the pennant. It's champagne. That's all. No monetary bonus at all. And if that weren't bad enough, it's flat champagne. Meanwhile, the movie cuts to Comiskey throwing a lavish party for members of the press. There's a clear difference between how Comiskey treats the press compared to how he treats his players. Those scenes didn't actually happen, but they were scenes that could have happened. By that, what I mean is that it is true, or it was true, that Charles Comiskey treated the press with luxury. And he also paid his players very poorly. One of his excuses for the poor pay was the Great War, World War I, which ended in 1918, had forced a lot of people around the world to make sacrifices, even if they weren't directly involved in the war effort. But still, the White Sox only had to look across the dugout in the World Series to find players who weren't having as good a year getting paid a lot more. For example, we learned about how great Joe Jackson was on the field. His paycheck was $6,000 in 1919. That's about the same as $88,000 today. 
and he was tied with Buck Weaver as the highest-paid players on the White Sox. On the other hand, one of the Reds' best players was outfielder Ed Roosh. He had a great year in 1919, hitting 321 in 133 games. Not as great as Joe Jackson's year, but a good year nonetheless. That year, Ed made $10,000, which is about the same as $147,000 today. Some players, like Charles Swede Risberg and Claude Lefty Williams, only made $3,000 in 1919. That's about the same as $44,000 today. Pretty much across the board, the White Sox were making less than players on other teams. It wasn't a surprise for players in the league, but it also wasn't anything they could do about it. Unlike Major League Baseball today, there was no free agency back then. There was what sports historians refer to as the reserve clause. Basically, every single contract at the time left the team owners with the right to sign the player for another year when the year ended. So let's say a player signs a one-year contract. At the end of that contract, the team owner had the right to sign the player for another year. The player had no choice to go anywhere else. Players had a lot less choice in the matter. They were bought and sold by team owners who reserved the complete rights to their services. Of course, the player didn't have to sign the contract at the end of the year. They didn't have to do that. If the player didn't like their paycheck, they didn't want to sign the contract, they could leave the team. But by the rules of the league, no other team could sign the player who had refused the contract of another team. So basically, if you don't sign the contract, you're not playing baseball anymore. So the White Sox players were stuck with low salaries for years and not many other options. For some, like Shoeless Joe Jackson, playing ball was the only thing that they knew. Jackson grew up in a rural mill town in South Carolina where he made $1.50 a day working at the mill before turning to a career in baseball. Surely, that's not something he wanted to return to. Oh, and as a little side note, the movie's correct in showing that Jackson didn't know how to read or write. That was more common in those days, especially coming from a rural background. Not to get too far ahead of our story, but in the movie, we see this as an interaction with a fan where he, the fan yells to Jackson, Hey Jackson, can you spell cat? The fan laughs, but Jackson hears it from third base where he stood after hitting a triple. Jackson yells back, Hey, mister, can you spell sh-? That exchange actually happened. It just happened in 1909 while Jackson played for a team in Savannah, Georgia, and not in 1919 like we see in the movie. But making a lesser salary wasn't the only thing that slowly gnawed away at the White Sox players over the years. It was all the other ways Comiskey tried to save a buck here and there. For example, the White Sox players were given a daily meal allowance of $3, less than the league minimum on other ball clubs of $4. It may not sound like much of a difference, but today that difference between $3 and $4 would be a difference between $45 a day and $60 a day. It adds up. And it probably didn't even help that before the scandal, a lot of fans around the league had taken to calling the White Sox the Black Sox because Comiskey dialed back on funds for cleaning their uniforms. That forced players to wear the same uniforms for days on end without washing them, meaning they usually took the field in the dirtiest uniforms. 
Then, to make matters worse, like we saw in the movie, Comiskey would spend lavishly to make the press reporters happy. In return, they seldom reported anything behind the scenes that was going on or the players' unhappiness. Probably the most common example of something that made the players unhappy was something that we saw in the movie. We see it happen when pitcher Eddie Seacott talks with Comiskey about a $10,000 bonus he's supposed to get. Comiskey replies coldly with, 29's not 30. There's not a lot of explanation about what's going on here in the movie, but what it's referring to was a bonus that Comiskey had promised Seacott when he got 30 wins in the year. As we learned, Eddie Seacott had a record of 29 wins and 7 losses in 1919. Close, but not quite. Of course, what the stat log does not show is that Eddie Seacott might have actually hit the big 3-0 if he'd been given the chance. You see, Eddie Seacott was pulled from the rotation with only a few weeks left in the season. Comiskey's claim was that he wanted to have Seacott rested for the playoffs, but being so close to 30 wins, most historians think that's an awfully fishy story, especially since, as we learned, Seacott had already pitched in over 300 innings across 40 games that year. As for the champagne we see in the movie, that's a little nod to something that actually happened too. After winning the pennant in 1919, In earning a spot in the World Series, the White Sox players found their bonus for their great play was a case of flat champagne. And that very well might have been the last straw and something that had been chipping away at players for a long time. All of these things added up. So it's not hard to see why the fed up players would be tempted by promises of a lot of money. But would they actually go through with it? Let's go back to the movie's timeline now because it's time to set up how the fix happened after winning the pennant. According to the movie, it's Chick Gandil who mentions the idea of getting six or seven other players to throw the World Series to Joseph Sport Sullivan. Everybody has nicknames, it seems. Sullivan is played by Kevin Teague in the movie. Now, Sullivan doesn't believe that he can do it, but Chick Gandil insists that he can for the right price. Meanwhile, another couple players are entering the arena soon. Not ball players, but players in the overall scheme. It's, again, another nickname, Sleepy Bill Burns and Billy Maharg. He's played by Richard Edson, while Bill Burns is played by Christopher Lloyd. These two want in on the action. Like he did with Sullivan, Gendil insists that he can get some of the other players in on fixing the World Series. Again, for the right price. Burns and Maharg go off to see if they can get some financing for the operation from a gangster in Chicago named Arnold Rothstein. According to the movie, this happens through Rothstein's associate, a former boxer named Abe Attell. After this, we see Chick Gandil trying to convince some of the players to go along with the plot. Most reject the idea, but then Gandil is surprised to find Eddie Seacott to be the first one to join. He tells Gandil he'll do it for $10,000 up front. The plot is on. With Seacott on board, it doesn't take long for Gandil to convince other players to go along with it. All the participants in the scheme that we see in the movie were real. And overall, this is a great example of how different mediums need to change some things to show the facts. By that, what I mean is 
The end result of this is all pretty accurate to what happened, but the way it happened in the movie is very simplified. So by extension, that means the scenes in the movie aren't really how it went down. Probably one of the big reasons why the specifics were changed in the movie was to adjust the timeline. The truth is that the idea to fix the World Series was something that was forming months before the series took place. That's different than in the movie where we see it happening after the Sox win the pennant. Although, to be fair, as we learned earlier, the 1919 White Sox were a powerhouse and most expected them to make it to, and win, the World Series. As the 1919 baseball season was underway, Chick Gandell was growing increasingly unhappy with his situation. He vented often to veteran pitcher Eddie Seacott, who wasn't happy that the other pitchers in the league that were much younger than him, with a lot less success, were getting paid a lot more money on other teams. Initially, Eddie really didn't pay much attention to Chick's complaints. He listened, but that's about as far as it went. But then, slowly, Chick's tactics shifted more and more to focus on the one thing that Eddie worried about outside of baseball, money. As a 35-year-old pitcher who had just bought a new farm for his family, money was always on his mind. Would he be able to provide for his family after baseball? We don't really know all the thought that went into this, but what we do know is that Just like the movie shows, at one random point in a train ride from Chicago to Boston for a game, Eddie sat down to Chick and told him he would do it for $10,000 up front before the series. That's all he needed to hear. Chick started rounding up other players to join the fix. The movie gets the players involved correct, too. There was Charles Swede Risberg, who Chick had already mentioned the fix to many times throughout the season. Just like the movie shows, it was one of those times when Chick was talking to Swede that Fred McMullen overheard the conversation. He was primarily a bench player, so he wasn't on Chick's list of those who needed to know, but he did know about it once he overheard it, so he had to get a cut or everyone else would find out. As it turned out, though, that wouldn't really matter, but that's getting ahead of our story. Although it mentions the number of games, since today the World Series is a best of seven, I think still think that it's worth pointing out that the World Series back then was the best of nine games. Chick assumed, as the ace of the staff, Eddie Seacott would pitch two or three of those games. So if they were to throw the series, he would need another pitcher. That's where Claude Lefty Williams came in. Just like the movie shows, Lefty was resistant at first. He didn't believe it. How could his teammates be in on something like that? Chick convinced Lefty that he already had enough players to fix the series anyway, so you might as well join in because you're going to be missing out on a payday. But then, and again, it's something we see happen in the movie, after Lefty found out that Eddie Seacott was involved, that's what turned him. After this, Chick rounded out the core group of Sox sluggers by getting Buck Weaver, Shoeless Joe Jackson, and Happy Felsch. Those players made up the heart of the order. Three, four, and five hitters. So, to recap, the eight ball players involved were Chick Gendill, Eddie Seacott, Lefty Williams, Swede Risberg, Fred McMullen, Buck Weaver, Joe Jackson, and Happy Felsch. 
Oh, and the movie was also correct in showing the people involved on the outside of the team. Chick Kendall had told Sport Sullivan that he could fix the series for $80,000. Chick had reached out to Sport as the only person that he thought might be able to get that kind of money. Sport told Chick that he could get the money, so that's when Chick started to go around trying to get the players in on it. But then, and not really related to that, was the involvement of another gambler named Bill Burns. We kind of talked about him earlier. Before turning to gambling, Bill was actually a pitcher in the majors. So when he ran into Eddie Seacott at a hotel, he asked Eddie point blank about some rumors that he'd been hearing from his underground connections. Was there a fix in place for the series? (laughs) Eddie laughed it off. At this point, the 1919 season was dwindling down, and that meant time was running out for Bill to get the pieces in place if he were to be in on a fix, even if Eddie hadn't confirmed or denied that there even was one. By the time their conversation ended that day, Eddie admitted there was something up. He also told Bill that they were having a hard time getting the money to fund the venture. Bill told Eddie that he wanted in on it. Bill would help them come up with the money. In the movie, we see Bill Burns and Billy Maharg appear on screen at the same time, but that's not how it happened. It was after this discussion with Eddie Seacott that Bill Burns decided to get in touch with Billy Maharg, an associate of his that he knew could help him with the logistics of it all. After finding out there was another gambler in on the fix, Chick Gandil told Bill Burns that he would need $100,000. That was their price for throwing the series. Never mind that he told Sport Sullivan the price of $80,000, now the price went up. Or, even better, combine the two for a take of $180,000 for throwing the series. Sounded good to the players. The problem for Bill Burns and Billy Maharg was that, well, they didn't have that kind of money. They tried their best, but couldn't raise the money either. But then, they found someone who was interested. Arnold Rothstein. He's played by Michael Lerner in the movie, and in truth, well, let's just say that Arnold Rothstein was a big-time player in the underground world of Chicago. $100,000 was a lot of money, but if anyone had it, it was Arnold Rothstein. And just like the movie shows, Billy Burns and Billy Maharg brought the idea to him. That was at the end of September, so that gives you an idea of how fast they had to work for the World Series. At first... Arnold wasn't interested. He didn't believe it could happen. But then, after a couple days, he reached back out to Bill Burns with the message. He was interested. That's all he needed to hear. The fix was on. Oh, and as a little side note, some people have suggested that Billy Maharg was not his real name. Some people think that that was a fake name. And the associate of Bill Burns was none other than another former baseball player named George Frederick Peaches, again, more nicknames, <laughs> Graham. After all, Maharg is Graham backwards. Not to get too far ahead of our story, but Maharg was actually asked this question point blank by a lawyer if he was actually George Graham. Maharg's response was that he knew who Graham was, but he wasn't Graham. As far as I can tell, everyone just took Maharg at his word. Going back to the movie, The World Series is about to begin. Just before the game, Eddie Seacott finds $10,000 under the pillow of his bed. The plan is in place, and if the players are still going to do it, the message they'll send that the fix is on is by Eddie Seacott hitting the first batter of the game. 
At the stadium, we see a journalist named Hugh Fullerton, he's played by Studs Terkel, talking to the White Sox manager, Kid Gleason. He asks if there's a fix on the series, and Kid denies it. After leaving, Hugh turns to his associate, a man named Ring Lardner, and tells him as he's keeping score on the game to circle anything that seems fishy. The first pitch of game one is right down the middle for a strike. Is he not going to go along with the fix? Then, on the next pitch, Eddie pitches it high and inside. It hits the batter, giving him first base, while also signaling to the gamblers that the fix is on. All of that happened. On September 29, 1919, Eddie Seacott found $10,000 under his pillowcase at the hotel as they prepared for the series. $10,000 in 1919 is about the same as $147,000 today. It's what he asked for. The ball was in his court. If he was going to go through with the fix, just like the movie shows, his task was to indicate this by hitting the first batter in Game 1. As far as the other players, they didn't see any money before the series began. Not for lack of trying, though. But Bill Burns introduced the players to Abe Attell, who managed to convince them that the money was good, but he had been told not to give them the money all at once. Instead, he was supposed to give it to them $20,000 at a time for each game that they lost. Understandably, the players were worried, but what could they do? If they wanted to see any money, they had to start by throwing game one. They figured they'd throw game one and game two. Those games were pitched by Eddie Seacott and Lefty Williams, respectively. And then games three starters was slated to be rookie Dickie Kerr. He was not in on the fix, but because Eddie would pick back up pitching game four, they figured that they would lose game three as well and then win game four behind Eddie Seacott. That way, Eddie could save face for the loss that he suffered in game one. At least that was the plan. Oh, and the movie is also correct in showing Hugh Fullerton was suspicious that something was up. A big reason for this was because he was seeing a lot of big bets on the series going towards Cincinnati, even though Chicago was a clear favorite to win. Then, to seal the deal, Hugh randomly ran into Bill Burns. Since Hugh was a well-known journalist and Bill was a former ball player, they knew each other. They chatted for a bit, and Hugh threw out the question. We don't really know exactly what the conversation was like, but I would like to think it was something like this. Say, Bill, who are you betting on for the series? The Reds, of course. And if you're smart, you'll do the same. That was enough for Hugh to want to dig deeper. He decided to pay close attention to the series and see if he could pick out plays that seemed, well, a bit off. So, just like we see in the movie, he decided to circle every single play that was suspicious to him on the scorecard. On October 1st, Game 1 of the World Series kicked off. The White Sox, as the visitors, went to bat first. Right fielder Shano Collins, who was not in on the fix, got a single to lead off the game, but was thrown out trying to steal second. Final line score for the top of the first was no runs, one hit, and no errors with no one left on base. The Reds came to bat in the bottom of the first. Eddie's first pitch of the 1919 World Series was a strike to Red second baseman Maury Rath. A fastball. It was a little high, but over the plate nonetheless. Then, Eddie gave the signal. 
It happened just like we see in the movie with a pitch that hit Mori on the back. On the surface, it might have looked like a mistake. But it was no mistake. The eight members of the White Sox knew it. Arnold Rothstein knew it. I won't go into every single pitch and play in this episode, but if you want to get detailed stats, check out BaseballReference.com for not only Game 1, but every single game of the 1919 World Series. I'll make sure to add a link to it in the show notes. The Reds slaughtered the White Sox in that first game by a score of 9-1. to If there were people suspecting the series was being fixed before it started, the performance in Game 1 only served to feed those suspicions. One key thing the movie doesn't mention, though, is how the odds changed. The day before Game 1 of the series, the White Sox were given gambling odds of 8-5. to five. After Game 1, those odds changed to 5-7 to seven in favor of the Reds. It's not something anyone suspected, but the odds changing like this meant there were a lot of people placing bets on the Reds. Why? Well, they must know something. Heading back to the movie's timeline, things don't get much better in Game 2. This time, it's lefty Williams pitching. And again, the players give it less than their best effort. According to what we see in the movie here, the White Sox catcher, Ray Schock, notices something is up. It started with a poor performance from Eddie Seacott in the previous game and carried over into Lefty's performance, throwing pitches that don't match what Ray called. At the end of the game, in the movie, we can see the scoreboard reading 4-2 in favor of Cincinnati. And that's true. Even though everyone was shocked that the Reds won the first game, even the Reds players themselves were shocked that they managed to blow out the Sox. No one really expected them to win two back-to-back. But they did. Just like the movie shows, the Reds really did defeat the White Sox in Game 2 of the 1919 series by a score of 4-2. to two. Most of that was on the strength of a three-run fourth inning by the Reds. It was nothing like the blowout of the day before, but the movie's also correct in showing that Ray Schock was upset at his teammates' subpar play. For the most part, the players involved in the fix tried to ignore the catcher. Eddie Seacott tried to ignore him in the first game, bypassing his calls for many pitches, and Lefty Williams did the same thing in Game 2, but not quite as much as the movie makes it seem. You see, Eddie had gotten pummeled in Game 1. It was the worst loss Lefty had seen the Sox ace suffer in all the six years that he'd been on the team. Lefty didn't want to lose quite so badly. After all, he was young, and he figured to be playing ball for many more years. So... For most of the game, Lefty was his normal self, a great pitcher. But in the end, he did manage to give up enough so the Reds could win 4-2. The series was headed back to Comiskey Park in Chicago with the Reds up two games to none. Back in the movie, Game 3 goes a little differently. Unlike how we see starters for the first two games being in on the fix, the Game 3 starter is rookie Dickie Kerr. According to the movie, he pitches a great game as the Sox get their first win in the series. And the movie is pretty accurate here. The final score for Game 3 was 3 to nothing in favor of the White Sox. The Reds only managed to get three singles the entire game, all of which were scattered harmlessly across different innings. Some fans were elated, hoping that the Sox were returning to form. They had a victory, 
were at home, and their ace, Eddie Seacott, was set to pitch the next game. Of course, as we're watching the movie, we know the rumors of a fix are more than just rumors, so when we see Eddie Seacott take the mound for the next game, we have an idea of what might happen. And it goes according to plan. For the players throwing the game at least, not necessarily everyone else. We don't really see much of what happens in Game 4 in the movie, but we see the end result. The White Sox lose. And that is true. Although it's worth pointing out that Eddie Seacott pitched a much better game than he did during the blowout of his first outing. The final score of Game 4 of the series was 2 to nothing, with the Reds squeaking out a victory. It's also worth pointing out that the movie was correct in showing those two runs came on an error by Eddie Seacott when he cut off a throw from the outfield and allowed everyone to be safe. It was a questionable play, to be sure. Back in the movie, Game 5 is shown as quickly as we see Game 4. By that, I mean we don't see a lot of the gameplay, just a few key moments. For example, we see some errors by Hap or Happy Felsch in the outfield in Game 5. The implication there is that Happy is doing his part to throw the game. While those plays are true, and it is true that Happy Felsch's participation in the rumored fix was suspected due to his poor play in Game 5, after the series, Happy Felsch claimed that he actually tried to make those plays. He just made honest errors. It happens. The problem, though, is... When some players are trying to throw the series in a way that doesn't look like they're throwing the series, even when you do make a bad play, it looks suspicious. The final score of Game 5 was 5 to nothing in favor of the Reds. Lefty Williams, the game's starter for the Sox, got the loss as he gave up all five earned runs. That gave them a four games to one advantage, the Reds, that is meaning that they would only need one more game to take the best of nine series. Going back to the movie, the players head back to Cincinnati for game six. With the Reds one game away from winning the series, Dickie Kerr will be on the mound again. Again, we don't see a lot of the game in the movie, but we see the key moment. For this game, it's the top of the 10th inning with the score tied 4-4, to There's men on first and third with Chick Gandil up to bat. John Cusack's version of Buck Weaver is dancing off third and begs Chick to do something, make a play. And he does, slicing a single into the outfield and allowing Buck to score. The Sox win 5-4. And it was, just like the movie shows, Chick Gandil who hit a single up to center scoring Buck Weaver for the go-ahead run in the top of the 10th. Of course, the movie doesn't show that the Reds came up to bat in the bottom of the 10th with a chance to tie the game. And surely, there was a lot of tension in the air because it was the heart of the Reds' order that came up to bat. It was their 4-5-6 hitters facing Dickie Kerr, the game starter who was still in the game. Two groundouts and a pop-up later, the White Sox took Game 6 by a score of 5-4 in 10 innings. Back in the movie... After Game 6, the Chicago fans are happy with the Sox victory, but in New York, Arnold Rothstein is not. Then again, the players aren't happy either. We see an interaction between Lefty Williams and Eddie Seacott back at the team's hotel the night before. Lefty says something to the effect of, there's been no sign of the money. But then he asks Eddie what he's going to do about the next game. 
I'm not sure yet, Eddie replies thoughtfully. Then at the stadium, Lefty is there with Happy Felsch when the two players ask Chick Gandell where's the money. Chick says he can't get a hold of Sports Sullivan, and Abe Attell apparently lost all his money when the Sox won Game 3. What do they do now? After all, they haven't seen any of the money that they've been promised, but they've been holding up their end of the bargain. Where's the money? Should they keep throwing the games? Well, in the movie, we see the players give their answer on the field. Behind strong pitching from Eddie Seacott, strong defense, and bats that have come alive, the movie indicates the Sox won Game 7, although we don't really get a great shot of the scoreboard in the movie. However, we know from history that the movie is showing this correctly. After winning Game 6 in the 10th inning on October 7th, which was a Tuesday, the next day, on Wednesday, the White Sox defeated the Reds by a score of 4 to 1. Eddie Seacott pitched like the ace he was going for the complete game victory. Back in the movie, even though the Reds still held the series lead 4 games to 3, the White Sox winning the last two, it was getting a little bit too close for comfort for some of the gamblers. We see a scene where Lefty Williams is approached by a fan after signing an autograph for him, someone else approaches Lefty asks who he should make it out to, and the man simply replies, You're going to lose tomorrow. <laughs> Lefty chuckles, Oh yeah? The man then proceeds to threaten Lefty. If you don't lose tomorrow, your wife dies. And according to the movie, they do. Lose, that is. Lefty pitches so poorly that he's taken out of the game in the first inning. But it's too late. The damage is done. The Red Sox lose the game. And with it, the series. That's true. Well, I suppose I should say that we don't know for sure if Lefty Williams was threatened like that. He claimed he was, though. But that's not really the kind of thing that gets documented, and it's certainly not the kind of thing that the person doing the threatening will come forward to admit freely. So it's one of those moments in history that we sort of have to take the word of a single person, Lefty Williams. What we do know, though, is that after getting the first batter out, Lefty Williams gave up four runs before he was relieved by Bill James. It certainly was an atypical start for Lefty, who went 23-11 and and had a 2.64 ERA in 1919, like we learned earlier. The final score of Game 7 was 10-5. The Reds won, and with it, took the 1919 World Series. Back in the movie, the series might be over, but the investigation into an alleged fix is just beginning. And things move pretty quickly. So let's get a quick overview of the scenes that we see in the movie. According to the movie, the two journalists that we saw earlier, Hugh Fullerton and Ring Lardner, help spur on the investigation of the players that they suspected throughout the series. Then we see the White Sox owner, Charles Comiskey, put up a reward of $1,000 for anyone who can come forward with proof that there was a fix. One of the players, Eddie Collins, admits that there was indeed a fix, but he turns down their reward money. This leads to Comiskey pushing for a position, a brand new position to organized baseball, a commissioner. That's where Kennesaw Mountain Landis comes in as he's appointed to be the first commissioner of baseball. His first task? cleaning up the game from any alleged gamblers. 
The basic idea of what we're seeing here is all true, but if, if you're like me, when you're watching the movie, it's hard to tell how long this is taking because the film doesn't really talk too much about dates. And that's important because probably the biggest difference between the movie and what really happened is something that the movie doesn't even show at all. And that is simply that even though there were rumors that during the series of a fix and many who believe them to be true, not much happened after the 1919 World Series. The movie is correct in showing that Hugh Fullerton was one of those who believed the rumors after seeing the series for himself. And he was one who used his position as a journalist to question the establishment. He wondered very publicly why there wasn't more being done to root out the gamblers. But nothing happened during the offseason. Well, that's not entirely true. During the offseason, gamblers around the nation were starting to realize that they could make some money off the ballplayers. In the 1920 season, the rumors that plagued the 1919 World Series spread to plenty of other teams around the league. The White Sox weren't the only players who were alleged to throw games during the 1920 season. Although they too were told to throw key games to keep their record low enough that the odds wouldn't get too far out of hand. All the while, the rumors of fixed games around the league were clearly becoming an issue for the owners. Some historians have suggested that the fixing of the games itself wasn't as much of an issue to them as it was that the public was learning about the fixes. By that, what I mean is that a lot of the owners seem to have been content with simply covering up the allegations. But baseball was America's pastime. Coming out of World War I, there was a renewed sense of American pride. If baseball wasn't on the up and up, what's next? But the owners didn't turn to a new commissioner right away like the movie implies. The movie doesn't mention this at all, but one of the key figures involved in uncovering the fix was not Kennesaw Mountain Landis at first. It was someone who is hardly in the movie at all, a man by the name of Byron, another nickname, Ban Johnson. His small role in the film was played by Clyde Bassett. He was the American League president, which means as things stood, he was the one who should take care of the alleged gambling rumors. He was also an arch rival of Charles Comiskey, who would have jumped at the chance to take down the White Sox owner. Comiskey knew this, so that's one reason why he wasn't so keen on trying to dig deeper behind the rumors of a fix in the 1919 World Series with his team. It also played no small part in Comiskey's supporting a new ruling party over the leagues. Still, the movie gets the basic gist correct. It was a former federal judge named Kennesaw Mountain Landis who was appointed as the first commissioner of baseball on November 12, 1920. Kennesaw Mountain was an imposing figure who was well-known and helped the owners of baseball seem impartial in their dealing with cleaning up the sport. Some historians suggest that his appointment was as much for public perception as it was an attempt to clean up baseball itself. Oh, and as a fun little fact, Kennesaw Mountain Landis got his unique name from a mountain in Georgia. His father was a surgeon for the Union Army during the Civil War, during the Battle of Kennesaw Mountain, when a cannonball shattered his leg. 
So when his son was born, he named the boy after the site as a reminder of the life-changing moment. Although you can't see this unless you actually read the transcript over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com, but Kennesaw Mountain Landis's name is spelled with one N compared to the geographical location, which is spelled with two Ns. Back in the movie, things come to a close with the court case to determine if the 1919 World Series was fixed. We see a brief scene where a tearful Eddie Seacott admits they were crooked. After this, reporters outside ask Eddie if he got immunity in exchange for talking about it. Eddie looks at the reporter. What's that? The camera cuts to a piece of paper with the words, Waiver of Immunity, written on top. A man named Alfred Austrian is there with Joe Jackson, and he tells Joe that he has to sign the document if he wants to be a witness. They don't want you to get in trouble. They just need you to be a witness, and you got to sign the document to be a witness. Everyone does. The illiterate Joe Jackson signs an X on the piece of paper. Since he can't read, he clearly doesn't know that he's signing away his immunity. Later, as Joe leaves the courtroom, a young boy pleads with him in a statement that would become a common saying for decades to come. Say it ain't so, Joe. You can almost see the young boy's belief in his hero get dashed as Joe replies that it is true. That happened. Well, only maybe on that last part. It's something that was reported to happen. I'm talking about the young boy saying, say it ain't so, Joe. But many years later, Joe Jackson himself said that that interaction never actually took place. The overall plot point here, though, that we see in the movie is a pretty good representation of what really happened. What the movie doesn't show is that Eddie Seacott signed a waiver of immunity too. Although he could read, he was overcome with emotion and didn't feel up to reading the piece of legalese that was thrown out in front of him. The lawyer we see in the movie, Alfred Austrian, and another associate of his were the only other two in the room when they insisted that they would take care of him. He'd be all right. All you got to do is just Sign this piece of paper and we'll make sure everything is okay. Eddie signed. Later, Joe Jackson would sign a waiver of immunity too. He couldn't read, so he didn't know what he was signing. He trusted the legal men around him who were insisting that's what he needed to do to make everything all right. Oh, and even though the movie never mentions this, some of the White Sox players talked about getting lawyers, but they were assured that they didn't need lawyers, just Sign the papers and we'll make sure that you're taken care of. We'll take good care of you. Going back to the movie, the court case turns out to be a victory for the ballplayers. The movie gets this pretty accurate too. But the verdict of not guilty doesn't do much for the eight White Sox players accused of throwing the 1919 World Series though. Even though they're cleared by law, Judge Landis uses his power as the commissioner of baseball to declare that no ball player who gambles or even hears anything about gambling without reporting it will play baseball again. And so, just like that, the eight White Sox players are out. They're done with baseball. As you can probably guess, that is true. Even though there were rumors and allegations of other players around the league fixing games, in my personal opinion, it sounded a lot like The White Sox throwing the 1919 series was how the commissioner of baseball and the owners intended to make an example moving forward. 
They did that by banning eight White Sox players from baseball for life. Chick Gandil, Eddie Seacott, Lefty Williams, Happy Felch, Swede Risberg, Buck Weaver, Fred McMullen, and Shoeless Joe Jackson. As the movie comes to a close, we're transported forward a few years to 1925. There are some fans watching a game when a new ball player named Brown steps up to the plate. They don't recognize him, but after ripping a hit, one of the fans says, he thinks that might be Joe Jackson. Buck Weaver is in the stands, and he says he knows who Joe Jackson is. He was one of the best ball players ever. Well, one of the other fans asks of the player who just lined a hit, Is that him? Is that Joe Jackson? Buck looks out to the field. Then after a pause, no, that's not him. The final bit of text on screen tells us that none of the band players played Major League Baseball ever again. It also tells us that Buck Weaver tried to clear his name every year until his death. That's true. Well, mostly. Buck did try to clear his name numerous times and insisted on his innocence for the rest of his life. Saying he tried to clear his name every year until his death might be overkill, though. I mean, he tried a lot at first, starting just a few months after the jury found the players not guilty. But it fell on deaf ears. Judge Landis would not reinstate him. He tried after Judge Landis was out as commissioner in 1945, but the new commissioner, Happy Chandler, also was not interested in reinstating the now aging Buck Weaver. And so, just like the movie says, none of the eight ball players who were banned ever played Major League Baseball again. For some, like the 36-year-old Eddie Seacott, the ban had been an embarrassing early retirement. For others, like the 27-year-old Lefty Williams, it was cutting short a promising baseball career. For example, Joe Jackson actually signed a new contract after the 1919 World Series. He had broken a record with 12 hits, the most in World Series history, a record that stood for almost 50 years until Bobby Richardson had 13 hits in the 1964 series. That's actually interesting if you think about it, because that means that Charles Comiskey, amid all the rumors of a fix in the 1919 World Series, he still offered Joe Jackson a new contract three-year contract, even after all those allegations. And he wasn't the only one. Buck Weaver signed a three-year deal, too, after the 1919 World Series. Others were offered contracts as well. Before signing his contract, though, Joe Jackson specifically asked if the White Sox included the 10-day clause. That was a clause many clubs used back then that basically stated that the team could fire the player for any reason with only 10 days' notice. He was told that the contract did not have the 10-day clause in it. Joe Jackson tried to get his wife to look at the contract first. She usually read the things that he signed to make sure everything was on the up and up. But he was told, that's not necessary. It's just a normal contract. Don't worry, there's no 10-day clause. So he signed. I'm sure you can see where this is going. It did have the 10-day clause in it. Sort of like how he was told the waiver of immunity that he signed was, well, the exact opposite of that. It makes you wonder how many other times he was taken advantage of because he couldn't read. The scene we see at the end of the movie where a player calling himself Brown turns out to be Joe Jackson also happened 
except it wasn't in 1925 like the movie shows. It was in 1922 when Joe Jackson's love of the game led him to trying to play again. He knew he couldn't play big league ball, but he just wanted to play. So he played on a team in Hackensack, New Jersey. Didn't go by Brown, but he simply went by the name Joseph. He played well in his first game, probably too well. Someone recognized him as Joe Jackson, and immediately the opposing team demanded that the game was forfeit and no one play against Hackensack as long as he stayed on the team. He was dropped from the team, but soon a sports promoter named Eddie Phelps had an idea. He tried to start a new team made up of players thrown out of baseball. They'd be billed as the Big League Martyrs. That didn't last long. But then, in 1923, Joe Jackson changed his name to Johnson, and Eddie changed his name to Moore as they joined Swede Risberg on a team in Louisiana. Again, Joe Jackson did so well, he hit over 500 that he was recognized as Shoeless Joe yet again. Gradually, the band players stopped playing organized ball and started making new lives. For example, Chick Gandell moved to California where he became a plumber. Happy Felsch returned to his family in Milwaukee, opening a bar there. Eddie Seacott returned to his family's farm in Michigan for a while before becoming a game warden. As for Joe Jackson, he returned to his hometown of Greenville, South Carolina. He tried to play from time to time. He was even offered a job by the Greenville baseball team. They were a minor league team, though, and upon hearing of the job offer, Judge Landis interfered. He declared the ban was not only for the majors, but also for the miners. So, Joe opened a liquor store in Greenville, which he ran for most of his aging years. In 1951, there were some people who tried to bring Joe back out from the shadows. The folks behind the movement to help clear his name even managed to get an opportunity for Joe to tell his side of the story on national TV. Joe was delighted at the chance. With the holidays around the corner, though, they set a date for January of 1952 for the interview on TV. Sadly, Joe didn't make it that long. He had a heart attack and died on December 5th, 1951, at the age of 63. This episode of Based on a True Story was written and produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. There's so much we didn't get to cover in this episode. Probably the biggest part of the story we didn't get the chance to chat about was how Joe Jackson fought the 10-day contract clause. He actually took it to court, claiming that he was lied to about the clause. They brought in a handwriting expert to look at the signature, and the case broke Comiskey's way. Later, a different handwriting expert was called in to verify Joe Jackson's side of the story. He ended up winning the case, but before he was given the $16,000 settlement, the judge overthrew the case, saying that Jackson committed perjury. Jackson and Buck Weaver ended up settling with Charles Comiskey over their terminated contracts out of court. But there's even more. For example, the story of how Arnold Rothstein and the other gamblers involved in the scheme left the country in the wake of the scandal in an attempt to evade discovery. Or how remorseful the players were and how they cooperated with the authorities even when it wasn't reciprocated. Yeah, I know there's a lot of complexity to this story, and I'd love to hear what your thoughts are about it. 
My recommendation for learning more about this story is to pick up Elliot Asanoff's great book that the movie is based on called Eight Men Out, The Black Sox and the 1919 World Series. As always, I've got a link to that book and plenty more resources to learn more about the true story behind the movie Eight Men Out over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. As a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, eight White Sox players were banned from baseball immediately after the 1919 World Series. Number two, shoeless Joe Jackson set a baseball record with 12 hits in the 1919 World Series. Number three, the White Sox lost the 1919 World Series to the Cincinnati Reds five games to three. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's start with number two. That is true. At the time, Joe Jackson's 12 hits in the World Series was a record. That's one reason why it was such a shock to some that there was even a question about an alleged fix. For example, after the trial and the stories of a fix became more apparent, Cincinnati Reds star Ed Roosh was quoted as saying, quote, I can't yet see how they could play the way they did and throw the games. It is a mystery to me, end quote. That brings us to number one. That's the lie. Even though it is true that eight players were banned after the 1919 World Series, as we learned, it didn't happen immediately after the 1919 series. In fact, most of the players played for the 1920 season, and the trial took place for most of the 1921 season. On the very same day that the trial ended, which was on August 3rd, 1921, Kennesaw Mountain Landis flexed his power as the commissioner of baseball by banning the players with this statement. Regardless of the verdict of juries, no player who throws a ball game, no player who undertakes or promises to throw a ball game, no player who sits in confidence with a bunch of crooked ball players and gamblers where the ways and means of throwing a game are discussed and does not promptly tell his club about it, will ever play professional baseball again. So that means number three is the other true answer. In 1919, the World Series was the best of nine. The Reds won that series five games to three. As a quick recap, here are the scores for the game. Game 1 went to the Reds by a score of 9-1. Game 2, the Reds won by a score of 4-2. In Game 3, the White Sox won by a score of 3-0. In Game 4, the Reds won by a score of 2-0. In Game 5, the Reds won again, this time by a score of 5-0. Game 6 went to the White Sox by a score of 5-4. That's also the only game that went to extra innings. And then Game 7 went to the White Sox by a score of 4-1. to And then in what would end up being the final game of the series, the Reds beat the White Sox by a score of 10-5 to in the 8th game of the World Series. That brings us to an end of this episode. I hope to chat with you again next week over on the Producers Feed where we'll take a look at The Princess Bride. Now, if you've made it this far, you're truly one of the super fans of the show, so... 
Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget you can request a future episode over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com. Oh, and if you enjoyed this week's episode, I hope you'll consider helping support the show and basically helping me pay for the future episodes as they come out. And as a way of saying thank you, you'll get access to the producer's feed where you can listen to Princess Bride as that comes out and hours and hours of past content. It's all exclusive to the producer's feed. You can learn more about that over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Until next time, thanks so much for listening and I'll chat with you again really soon.